1: Welcome everyone back to the better than before show. How are you doing? It's good to see you again. Thanks for tuning in and listening to today's podcast on our show today. I'm going to be visiting with Giselle Cavari. She is the president and co-founder of engine performance company. And she's an expert on generations in the workforce. And we're going to be talking to her about the generations that are in charge today, the generations that will be leading us forward into tomorrow. And we're also going to dive deeper into another key area of life for elite-level performers. We're going to be chatting about family and relationships. It's all coming up right now on the Better Than Before show, brought to you by University Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. The
2: 2020 Subaru Forester, the SUV for all you love standard symmetrical all-wheel drive plus 33 miles per gallon standard eyesight driver assist technology a spacious and comfortable interior the best suv for all you do join us
0: for the subaru a lot to love event going on now university subaru homegrown and proud of it see dealer for details are you working twice as hard but enjoying fewer rewards Purchase online today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and our website, clearvisiondevelopment.com.
1: Welcome back to Better Than Before, Tony Richards and my special guest today, is the president and co-founder of InGen People Performance Incorporated, Giselle Kavari. And she's dedicated to building strategies and programs that help clients target, motivate and engage employees in order to increase performance and productivity. She is a sought-after resource to industry leaders, having worked with 18 of the top Fortune 500 companies across North America. Over 60,000 people globally have experienced an engine workshop or presentation. Giselle has devoted almost 20 years researching the impact that generational differences have on organizational performance. She's co-authored two books and completed Canada's first national Gen Z research survey. So we have got the generational uh, expert on our show with us today, Giselle Cavari, And Giselle, welcome.
2: Thanks so much, Tony. I'm so glad to be part of this.
1: If our discussion today is anything like the discussion we had a few days ago about what we wanted to talk about, this will be phenomenal, right?
2: (laughs) Yes. Lots to talk about.
1: There is. And first of all, I want to thank you for taking some time out to do this with us today.
2: Oh, you're more than welcome.
1: All right. So generations in the workforce, tell us the different generations that we now have cohabitating and working together
2: so it's really interesting because I've been doing research as you mentioned for for a number of years and when I started in this space in 2003 there was really three predominant generations the traditionalists the baby boomers and the gen xers I'm a gen xer and back then as a gen xer I was one of the younger people quote-unquote one of the younger people um, that organizations were struggling to understand and to recruit and to manage and to lead. And then millennials joined the workforce. And we used to refer to them as Gen Ys. And then the language changed. So they're the millennials. And now we've got Gen Zs. And this is the youngest generation that's represented in our organization. So lots of workforces today, most of the organizations I work with still have you know, three or four generations. And in some cases they will have all five generations. The traditionalists are the oldest and they're 75 to 98. So, I mean, argue, arguably not a lot of them left in the workplace, but they, they still exist. They're in the boards, they're at senior leadership levels or executives. And then they're also in part-time roles. I mean, I think a lot when you go to the, the Walmart, that, that greeter sometimes might be a traditionalist. There are people who have still stayed in the workforce, You've got the baby boomers that are the 56 to 74. Again, lots of them retiring. 9.6 million baby boomers in Canada, but 78 million in the US. So huge group of people. And each year more of them are moving out of the workforce and that's making room for younger people. The Gen Xers are sort of sandwiched in between this big boom of baby boomers that happened after the war with the Gen Xers that are between 40 and 55 years old. So right in that mid-career, senior leadership roles in many cases highly influential but a much much smaller generation than the baby boomers and the boomers kids are the millennials and they're between 25 and 39 a lot has been written about the millennials in fact there's been unfortunately a lot of millennial bashing over the last you know five six years Uh, But this is the generation that's come in and really shake things up. And now we've got the Gen Zs, as I mentioned. So they're 24 years and all the way down to to eight years old. So obviously, those eight-year-olds aren't coming in our workplace yet. But those 24-year-olds just graduating from college, coming right into the workforce. And so we have these different generations represented. And we also have these different generational mindsets. Even if someone isn't that age, they might have that mindset.
1: So in 2003, us baby boomers were in your Gen X way, and we're still in your way. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's right. A lot of Gen Xers just say, just move on, just go, just retire. And the right. boomer says, I'm not going anywhere.
1: That's right. I, I think another uh, common thing that I find interesting, and I always like to bring it up to those that I coach, is when they talk about millennials they tend to talk about them as if they're all 25 years old or, or younger and they don't realize that the oldest millennials are getting almost ready to turn 40.
2: Exactly. I joke, I say, you know, we think of them as the babysitter, but they're the boss.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what are some of the key differences you found in your research among these?
2: Fundamentally, What we have found is that there's a difference in the mindset, but there's also a difference in motivators and behaviors. And so in our research and our work, we take a very, very sort of data-driven focus. So first of all, we don't want to be speaking about stereotypes or just labeling people. We want to look at what the data tells us. And secondly, we take a behavioral model, which means Is you can absolutely have someone who might be 25 years old in your organization who thinks and acts like a traditionalist, meaning they've come from a traditionalist background or upbringing or culture. And at the same time, they're working with a 25 year old millennial and they're not getting along. So the differences are often driven by how people define things or the behaviors they demonstrate. And so in the research and the work that we've done, I've looked at five different organizational factors. I write about it in my first book. But really, the top three, I would say, are the most common is how each generation perceives loyalty, how they respond to authority, and what is their work style. So I'll give you a couple examples. When you think about loyalty, traditionalists in the traditionalist world and many industries and sectors and companies still have this mindset, which is you're going to come in and you're going to stay. You're going to prove that you're a really great employee. You're not going to leave. And so traditionalists and even baby boomers had that mentality. Now, obviously if they were impacted by, you know, recessions and downturns in the economy, they've they've had to lose jobs and, and readjust. But fundamentally there was a commitment to the organization and the organization was committing back to those employees. That had an absolute break when we got to Gen Xers because Gen Xers said, you know what, I'm not gonna be loyal to this organization anymore. It doesn't make sense. They're not loyal back to me. What I'm gonna do is be loyal to my manager. Because that's the person who can help me get ahead. That's the person who's that, that one-up authority to deciding what learning and development I get. Or what coaching I can receive. Or what cross-functional project can I be on. Or they're going to sign off on something that's really important to me, which is my, my vacation time. And we start to see this shift even more so when millennials came in. And they said... I'm now loyal to my employee group. I'm I'm loyal to my colleagues cross-functionally. I'm loyal to all of those people that I care about in the organization. And this is cross-functionally. And so millennials talk and share everything, their salary, their performance reviews, what they think about the organization. And a lot of times it's very, very challenging for senior leaders. And then we get to the Gen Zs and they say, you know what, I'm going to be loyal to this experience. I hope I can stay here. I really want to be able to to hang my hat in an organization. That was what was most surprising in our research, is that Gen Zs and Gen Zs. I'm American and Canadian, so we say either or, Gen Z, Gen Z. Uh, But they've said they want to bring back this traditional value of loyalty, but they're not going to just be loyal to an organization blindly. So as you see, as we go through these different mindsets, these are some of the challenges we face or work styles, or authority, and these clash points can come into play in our organizations because we're not clear always what our own mindset is, and more importantly, we tend to evaluate others based on the lens in which we use and the definitions of these values that we use.
1: So I, I have a question for you, and I, I have sort of a, a layman's theory because I'm nowhere near the expert you are, but uh, what was the generation before a traditionalist? Is there a name for that?
2: Well, there's some different terms. Some people have said the Silent Generation. Sometimes they group the traditionalists in with the Silent Generation, um, but but that's sort of been that that generation that uh, was was really pre-war, um, and and. You know, I mean, they they would be now over a hundred. So there's not a lot of them left, but silent generation is usually the one I've seen most often in the research.
1: So my grandfather would have been part of that generation. And my dad would be in the traditionalist category. And I am in the, one of the baby boomer categories and working for my grandfather from the mid seventies until 1980, he believed that my generation, uh, was very different and did not think that we had the work ethic and didn't think that we had the, the get up and go. And we were very different from his generation. Is that always the case with younger generations from the generation you're in?
2: I think so. Absolutely. Uh, and, and there's great quotes about that where I think, you know, people historically have, have, you know, you read the quote, and it sounds like we could be saying something about this new generation. And in fact, you find exactly it was the same things were said 100 years ago. Yes, I think there's absolutely a tendency for us to look behind and say, Oh, my goodness, look at this next generation. They're not as good as we are. Their music is horrible. They don't have a work ethic. And, and we tend to to discount that younger generation. So there's absolutely that. Having said that, What's interesting about focusing around the generational strengths, because that's really what we want to do, our focus and our work is around how can you maximize the different generational mindsets you have in your organization in order to drive greater performance and productivity. But we need to understand where those differences are in order to minimize any clash points or any differences. So what's interesting is that when we look at this as a concept, as a mindset, as a is that what we can find is if we can open our mind to not looking at the younger generation in a negative way and looking for those opportunities, we can find commonality and we can strengthen and and have stronger and more high performing teams. But it also requires that we adjust our thinking. I mean, perhaps your grandfather had to adjust some of the ways in which he worked with you, or maybe he didn't, he just expected that you were gonna adapt to him. And, And that probably was more likely. But today, most of the leaders that are boomers and Gen Xers say, I may not entirely agree with what millennials or Gen Zs want, but I'm at least willing to be open to hear it and and find a way that we can collaborate because we want to retain top talent. We want to make sure, well, we want to track that top talent. We want to retain that top talent. And most importantly, we want to have high performing teams. And the best way to do that is if we can understand those different mindsets.
1: So tell me a little bit about the business case for why this is important for all of us to understand?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really great question. And and certainly for senior leaders, that's often the question I, I get. So this is great, this is nice to know, but who cares? The business case really is around being able, as I just mentioned, to recruit, retain, and manage and lead top talent. And it's really around how do we drive better engagement from our workforce? And so the research is very, very clear that if you have a highly engaged workforce, organizations, certainly in the private sector, will have annual revenue growth of one to two percentage points above their industry average, and one to two percentage points below industry average when it comes to their cost of goods sold. So businesses that have engaged employees will make more and spend less. So when I work with executive teams and boards and CEOs, It's really about recognizing how do we maximize the talent that we have and drive that in as a competitive advantage. And the best way to do that is by having a highly engaged workforce. We can't have a highly engaged workforce if we don't know how to demonstrate some key characteristics. So we have a model of organizational engagement, and we define that as transparency, responsiveness, and partnering. Which means these are characteristics that all leaders need to demonstrate in an organization. And that the organizational structure or HR policies and practices need to align to. So when we think about transparency, it's about being open and honest and forthcoming with an organization's motives and intentions. So why are we doing something? And it's also about helping employees understand the impact they're making and the contribution to the big picture. That's particularly important when you have younger employees joining an organization because as all of us experienced early in our career, We started jobs and we came in and we did work and maybe it wasn't all that fun or sexy, but we really needed to do that work because it was, it was contributing. It was adding value, but maybe we didn't see what that was. We didn't know our connection and our peace in the organization.
1: Yeah. The first part of our organizational uh, life, we're just trying to find the bathroom. It was almost like just getting to high school, you know?
2: Exactly. And you don't, you wonder why are you doing these things? And it feels mundane and routine a lot of the times it's again maybe not all that fun and you're thinking is this it well leaders and organizations that can make a connection point for people really early on to say look this is valuable what you're doing maybe it is not the you know the the most exciting work always but it has to get done and this is how you're contributing to our organization or our team or our client our client outcomes that's important because it drives engagement from people that second piece is responsiveness, which is about going to employees and asking for their opinions. And lots of organizations do that really well. They do employee engagement surveys, or we have town halls, or there's lots of different ways that people can be involved in focus groups, discussions. But it's asking employees, what are your thoughts? What are your ideas? And then CEOs get very, very nervous and executive teams and boards, and they say, Oh no, Giselle, does that mean that when we ask these ideas, we have to do? We have to do something about them. We have to implement them because now am I just going to have to do everything that everybody asks? And the answer is no. When you're being responsive, you're soliciting opinions, but you're also doing two important things. You are managing those expectations. So it's completely reasonable to say, this is what we can do for you. And this is what we can't do. So maybe, no, we're not going to have an ice cream truck come in every single day, or you're not going to have on-site massages, or I don't know, maybe you will. That's great and we need to follow up in a timely manner so there's no point in going to ask an employee for their opinion if we don't follow back up and say hey you know what thanks this is what we did with your feedback so that's an important piece and a lot of times that isn't done earlier enough in people's careers and it isn't done broadly enough so people become disengaged and the final piece is partnering which is having an organization having leaders having HR policies that really take a partnering approach which is recognizing that every single employee in your organization is an investor and they are an investor of their human capital a gentleman named thomas davenport wrote a book on human capital and it was very interesting and he said we all possess it because it's made up of our knowledge and our skills and our abilities and the time and the effort that we give to our employer so if i'm investing my human capital in your business then i want a return on that investment and an organization and leaders that accept that this is a partnering approach, that it's shifting away from my father's mentality, which was, you know what, you're really lucky to have a job, to we're really lucky to have you. So these things are all about the business case because it allows businesses to drive greater engagement. And if they can drive better engagement, they can have more high-performing, more profitable, more uh, more productive business uh, teams and, and outcomes.
1: Well I know you've spent enough time on this issue and you've done plenty of research so you probably know what are the typical mistakes that are made by organizations or by leaders when they're trying to engage all of these different kinds of people.
2: Yeah again there are there are some some key missteps. Uh, I would say number 1 is that I have seen in the last 8 10 years, even a real rush to engaging younger employees, which isn't a bad thing, but in fact, companies and leaders and organizations have alienated their Gen Xers and their baby boomers. And you may have heard that, you know, you may have been at a party and people are complaining about younger employees, but more often people are saying, you know, nobody cares about me. I've been in this organization for 20 years, or I've been invested in this business for over a decade and what happened here? So the misstep can be sometimes swinging the pendulum too far to just addressing needs of of younger employees and not not addressing everyone's needs. The second thing is that oftentimes there's a lot of corporate speak. So senior leaders, executive teams will say, yes, this is what we want. This is what we're going to implement. We're going to have flexible work arrangements, or we're going to, um, you know, we're, we're going to offer employees a lot of learning development, or we're going to make sure that uh, we we are much more transparent about what our, our practices are, our leadership practices. And then it falls down because they're not executing on that consistently. And the middle managers are the ones that need to be supported because they don't know how to lead and manage their teams. So most of the work I end up doing is working with leaders to say, how can you maximize again the skill set of your teams and manage their performance effectively by being really good at adjusting and being being a situational leader. Does that make sense? Oh, Adjust yeah. what they do to the people in their team. So senior leaders buy in, but their middle management doesn't know how to execute.
1: Yeah. I, I, I've seen, even with the clients I work with on occasion where the baby boomers almost turn into grumpy old men where it's like, <laughs> nobody did this for me when I first got here or when I started my career and yes. they never really stopped and thought that they didn't really want, desire, or need that.
2: And, and I, my response to that, because I hear that often, Tony, is my response to that is two things. One is, well, just because it didn't happen to you, does it? Like, what? How did that feel? It wasn't very good. Should we continue right. to do, you know, the wrong thing? Should we use, you know, ineffective leadership practices just because you experienced them? Of course not. And and the second piece is, you know, unfortunately for baby boomers, nobody really needed to care what they thought. 78 million people, it's a supply and demand issue. So a lot of employers said, look, if you don't want to do your job the way I want you to do it, that's okay. I got 15 people lined up outside who will take your job in a second. And so they didn't have the ability to demand some of the things that younger employees can demand now, because in many industries and sectors, organizations need those younger employees, they need to attract and retain the best and brightest, they have to find a way to make sure they an employer of choice or, you know, great place to work on all of these awards. And so a lot of boomers are frustrated by that, because they didn't have that leverage. And the reality is they didn't.
1: I think that's why I like change so well. I mean, if I had to walk uphill 15 miles to school every day in four feet of snow, I, I don't want anyone else to have to do that.
2: Right. But a lot of people do. Yeah. And, and it's that, it is also that frustration and it's great because what I deliver workshops and presentations. And what's great is that people are really open and honest, even with their, their frustrating thoughts. And that's okay. I mean, I say, Hey, let's, let's, let's air this out. Let's talk it through. And a lot of people are very frustrated. Even that Gen Xers you mentioned, right? Well, why doesn't the boomer just retire and give me somewhere to grow <laughs> the boomers saying why do why? wish I could retire. I can't afford to. Or, you know, I've been I've been waiting around for you know this this great retirement and all of a sudden it's not going to happen the way I thought it was going to. So a lot of people have this angst and younger employees come in and they say, why am I being discounted just simply based on my age? So they are scary smart. Millennials and and Gen Zs, they've been exposed to so much so early in their life, the skill sets they bring the the opportunities to see things differently are are just amazing but we discounted and we shut it down because of that frustration and because of that angst where we feel like maybe we didn't get a share a fair shake and and i think that's also common every generation probably feels that they had it harder than every other generation
1: we're visiting with giselle kavari she is the president of next gen or Ingen. gen sorry Ingen gen performance And, you know, the other thing around that issue that I think also affects it is that people live in longer and the time, the time horizons have expanded. Uh, If my father, who's 76, if he, if he didn't have a few health issues, he'd still like to be working. So, you know, I think people are retiring later in life, uh, full-time retirement anyway.
2: Absolutely. And that's why it's important to understand these generational differences, because we are going to have four or five generations working together for a very long time. And it wasn't like that when people, you know, freedom 55 and and left the workplace um, much earlier. So absolutely, the boomers are are not going to be exiting the workforce en masse as, as it was predicted, you know, a decade ago. Uh, And same thing with the Gen Xers, they're going to likely work well into their 70s because health wise, they can, they may choose to, they might need to financially, lots of different options. So we want to have this mix of generational um, teams working well together and making sure that we can all collaborate and and again, hopefully have more high performing teams from it.
1: So I'm curious about um, what areas of business are impacted by generational differences.
2: You know, it's it's really very very broad. Um, when I started doing this work in 2003, I can be honest, Tony, I really didn't think that this was going to be an issue in 2020. Uh, I started the business back then with with my former business partner, and we thought, oh, this is going to be kind of fun, and we'll we'll offer up some learning and help people through this, and and then everyone will sort it all out. And here we are, 17 years later in business, and in some cases, is just the tip of the iceberg because it's in impacting everything. So of course, leadership um, and the ability for leaders to understand the generations that they're leading and how to engage them. It it impacts sales. So how I work with a lot of organizations and sales teams to say, how do you layer on a generational perspective to your sales process and your communication? So what are the customer service techniques? It's very different. If you're trying to sell to my mother, who's you know almost in her late 70s and almost early 80s, That's going to be very different than trying to sell to my niece, who's, you know, 15, actually was not 15 yet, but the, you know, this, this adjustment to the sales and service piece is important. It's impacting recruiting and retention and talent management, all the HR practices, policies and programs around flexible work arrangements, reward recognition, performance management, all those things. And then of course it's impacting the, the ability to onboard new hires. And to work with the millennials and the Gen Zs themselves to set them up for success. How do we bring them into an organization, make them aware of those other generational mindsets so that they can successfully navigate in the organization and and integrate into their team? So we're finding it across the board. And that's I find what most exciting and most interesting about this work is is all those different areas. And team collaboration. Sorry. Of course, the last one is team collaboration. So how do the teams work well together? How do they understand their differences and, and, you know, how do they strengthen their communication and their, their ability to, to manage and handle conflict?
1: So I'm, I'm almost certain the best thing for organizations to do is to bring you and your team in and (laughs) install your model into their organization to help uh, with some of these issues. But outside of that, what are some actions that leaders could take to improve their retention and engagement of these multi-generational uh, employees?
2: Well, I think your first suggestion is lovely. Absolutely. I'm happy to, to partner with any organization that wants some help in this area.
1: Hey, uh, I'm going to advocate for are... you, Giselle. I'm going to advocate <laughs> for you.
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, but there are certainly a number of, of quick wins that leaders can do. What we know, especially for younger employees and the global research shows us it's consistent across uh, North America and uh, yeah, and around the world, is if there's nothing else that you can do, look for ways to offer greater flexibility. It's your biggest bang for your buck. So are we able to allow for flexible work arrangements, uh, the ability to work from home, to have some choice in where and when people work? Uh, that, that ability to have flexibility is what's separating great employers and employers of choice with younger people and those that are where it's very rigid and very, very structured. Now, I work in lots of industries where they say that's not possible. So retail, or manufacturing, um, or any of the places where you, you, know, you have to sort of show up at work at a certain set time, or you know, being able to be on a line, then you, you can't necessarily say, well, I'm just going to go, you know, go to the gym now. But even in those environments, and military and paramilitary organizations, they're looking for flexibility. So I'd say that's a quick win. Absolutely. The other is is that leaders and HR teams need to look at how can they be more transparent, more responsive, and more partnering, as I mentioned in their actions. And that could be as simple as sending out an email, and you know, being clearer around what your expectations are, or soliciting someone's opinion, or making sure that you're involved in a team team event being more partnering in your in your approach. So there's some very quick hits that way. And I would say finally, it's also about recognizing that organizations um, can layer this on to all of the issues that they're facing. So it's not that generational understanding will solve all your problems, but it can give you a lens or an insight that you maybe haven't considered before. So if turnover is an issue in one part of the business, can we layer that on and say, is there a generational perspective? Are people leaving more from a certain generation or why? Or if we have a really high performing group in our business, what's happening over there? What's working so well? And let's put this through a generational lens. Why is this so attractive to this group of people or not attractive to this group of people? So using your own data and your own insights, but filtering it through that lens is, I think, really, really helpful. And it can give some some deep insights that sometimes haven't been considered.
1: Well, I'm sure that uh, all of our listeners have burned up a few ink pens uh, as we've been talking for the last 20 or 25 minutes about generational differences Giselle Cavari, one of the uh, global experts in this field and we're going to tell you more about how you can find out more about Giselle and her company and also uh, how you can contact her. But first before we let you go I'm going to ask you the standard list of closing questions I ask every guest who comes on the show. Great. Number one what is the best memory that comes to mind for you?
2: Oh, that's a good one. Wow. Um, I've got lots, but I would say I took an amazing trip uh, through West Africa, or East Africa. Before I went to West Africa, I was on a safari, and there was one particular morning where we woke up very early to go on a a ride, and uh, we were standing and looking over the horizon, and we were in the Jeep, And you could see the animals from as far as you could see. We were there during a time when um, it was the migration. And it just, it was an incredible moment in time. And it was awe-inspiring and recognizing that um, all of this goes on uh, every single day. And we're important on this earth. But in many cases, we are insignificant to the bigger, broader um, energy that's happening around us. So that was a, a really powerful moment for me.
1: Very cool. Number one hero in your life?
2: Oh, (laughs) I'd say there's two, probably my parents. Um, My dad uh, escaped Eastern Europe and Hungary and came to uh, Canada in 1956. And uh, he's uh, an incredible person and I'm very, very close with him. And my mom is just uh, uh, somebody who really works very hard to be kind and generous and to, to look for opportunities to give back to people every day. So both of them have taught me a lot of lessons and uh, try to live those as much as possible.
1: What are their names?
2: Jermaine and Andy.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Kobari. What is the top value you subscribe to?
2: I would say growth, that we can always learn and we can always grow, and it always isn't always easy but that we have that ability to constantly look for ways to improve or evolve.
1: Most important person in your life?
2: Just one? Just one? That's too too hard. I I think it's too hard to say. So I won't pick a person right now. I'll just pick my puppy.
1: Okay. What's the puppy's name? Bailey. Bailey. What kind of (laughs) dog is Bailey?
2: She's a mini Labradoodle. All right. (laughs) she's perfect so
1: what is your favorite
2: i'll I'll skip the humans and pick my animal there you go
1: what's your favorite thing
2: oh my gosh uh thing to eat or to do
1: no food is next what's your favorite thing
2: (laughs) oh my favorite thing dancing
1: okay what's your favorite food
2: everything but chocolate
1: chocolate is the pick
2: Yeah. Everything, but chocolate would be number one.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Um, This will be a good one to go with your answer to number one. What is the most beautiful place you've been to?
2: Oh, wow. Uh, I'd probably say Bali.
1: Very awesome. If you could describe success in one word, what would that word be?
2: Setting a goal and achieving it.
1: How do you want to be remembered? Remembered
2: is somebody who is fun, who is authentic, and who worked hard.
1: If you could go back and talk to a young Giselle and give her some advice, what would that advice be?
2: Don't worry so much. And uh, things things are going to work out. And they may not look the way you thought they would but the opportunities you're going to have along the way are going to be amazing and do your best every time you can. And that will serve you well.
1: What's your favorite sound?
2: Oh, the waves at the ocean.
1: Oh, I like that too. And finally, what is the best lesson that you've learned?
2: Hmm. These are good questions. I wish I had them in advance.
1: Well, (laughs) that's that's why I don't like to give them in advance. I know.
2: (laughs) You say rapid fire, but I take so long to answer them. I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, Those are good ones. What is the best lesson I've ever learned? Yes. That we have the ability to influence and control our, our responses to outcomes. So the choices that we make. And how we choose to respond to things um, are within our control.
1: That's a good one. Giselle Kavari, president of NGEN People Performance Incorporated. Giselle, you're a good friend for doing this. Please tell everybody how to find out more about you and how to get in touch with you.
2: Fantastic. Well, they can visit the website, www.ngenperformance.com. And they can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Giselle Kavari. And they can follow me on Twitter at ngen underscore training.
1: Wonderful. Listen, I got so many questions for you that you'll have to come back sometime.
2: I'd love that. Thanks so much, Tony. It's lots of fun.
1: All right, Giselle. You're a good friend, and I appreciate you. Giselle Cavari, president of Engine People Performance, talking about uh, g- generational differences in the workforce. I'll have some leadership lessons for you next on Better Than Before. <laughs>
2: The 2020 Subaru Forester. The SUV for all you love. Standard symmetrical all-wheel drive plus 33 miles per gallon. Standard eyesight driver assist technology. A spacious and comfortable interior. The best SUV for all you do.
0: Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru. Homegrown and proud of it. See dealer for details receive weekly coaching tips from Tony Richards delivered straight to your inbox. Whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, Tony can help you reach your goals and give you a competitive edge within your industry. Tony's Monday morning coaching memo covers topics ranging from leadership development to teamwork to company culture and more. Text the word leadership to 38470 to sign up for Tony's Monday morning coaching memo or sign up online at clearvisiondevelopment.com.
1: Welcome back to Better Than Before. I'm Tony Richards. Let's dive into family and relationships, another key area for elite-level performers. You know, family is very important. It provides the foundation for an extraordinary life. There are so many ways today that we can connect with other people socially. We have social networks. We have in-person networks. We have all this technology that's helping us stay connected. And sometimes, believe it or not, miraculously, we lose connection with those people that are closest to us. We get seduced trying to be the very best at what we do, and we forget about our family connections, and we forget about our relationships that we have that are human connections. And a human moment is an authentic moment when two people have a face-to-face being present with each other an authentic communication and conversation. That's what a human moment is. And we've got so much texting going on now. we got so much cell phone connection, so much social media. And I, I don't want to sound like an old fogey that's down on those things. I mean, if you know me at all, you know that I have large networks of people connected by all of those platforms I just mentioned. And at the same time, We have to have the superior feeling of well-being that we can only get by having human moments with other people that are close to us. In this new field of psychology called positive psychology, this is the field that studies happy, successful, and fully functioning people. And I really enjoy studying material from this psychological field of study. And one trait of these people that are very, very happy is that they have a strong family and they have a strong community. And community is uh, not the town they live in, but it's the group of people they have chosen to surround themselves with. So they have the two groups. They have their family by blood and then they have their family by connection and surround, surrounding community, right? And I think so many times we get stuck uh, into a mode of thinking called either or rather than being on an elite level of thinking, which is both and. And the either or thinking mindset will convince you that you can't have both, that you have to have one or the other. You can either have success or you can have a close family and close friends. But the truth is you can enter into having a both and mentality. You can have both a successful career and a very close and meaningful family and uh, community of relationships. You can have both and not either, or, and let's talk about some strategies to do that. So first strategy I'll share with you is that you want to spend some quality time and quantity of time with the people that you care about. 25 years ago, I wish someone would have told me that the enduring meaning of life would be shaping my children's values, not in my professional success. That's the Rabbi Harold Kushner that said that. And I think essentially what he's saying is we take the people who love the most for granted until... We either lose them or we lose connection with them or uh, something bad happens, right? If your children grew up according to early indications, we would have nothing but geniuses. And that's Gertrude that said that. So as we go through life, we pick up bad beliefs and wrong assumptions. And we get battered on by the storms of life and we start to shut down And we begin to lose that genius that we had when we were very, very young. And I think the trick is, is to reconnect with that genius that we've always had and connect with that genius in our children and in our family and in those closest to us in our inner circle. I've always heard it said that the family who plays together stays together because, Chip and Dan Heath wrote a book last year called *The Power of Moments*, and really, what the central idea of that book is, is that life is a series of moments, and you need to schedule in times in your life to spend time together, uh, having moments together, either you know, reading together, having discussions together, and you know again, this is going to make me sound like an old fogey and I I don't want to sound like that, but it just seems like to me, I was, I was teaching a class yesterday to one of my clients, groups of managers, and I was teaching about connection and communication. And I just made the comment that when I was growing up and I know it happened when my parents were growing up, families communicated and talked more primarily around the dinner table around the fireplace and around either the radio or television because that was the most advanced technology and parents limited the amount of that technology that you could consume there's only so much television that they would allow you to have and the then the television that you did have was shared and then a lot of times discussed maybe at breakfast the next morning or maybe at dinner but there were topics that were brought up and you learned social graces and communication skills around the family table, right? And I'm just not sure that we do that as much anymore because it seems like we're in a real big hurry. There's so many more options. There's so many more things to do. There are so many more places to go. The options are so many and varied that we lose some of that just simple time together that we could bring into our family lives or maybe uh, adventure, doing interesting things together. You know, human beings crave novelty, and they hate boredom. So we got to work hard to freshen things up, and we don't need to let ourselves get into a place where we're trying to get technology to be the catalyst of keeping us from being bored. We can engage our own creativity and try to figure out some ways in one-on-one human moments, uh, to, to alleviate that boredom from each other. Strategy number two is you need to be yourself more. Often some of our greatest regrets are the, are the people that we didn't give ourselves to, or maybe the words that we didn't speak. And you just never can be open enough with your family members you might be you might be feeling silly for a moment if you you know venture into an uncomfortable territory or if you don't you might feel regret for a lifetime that you never quite did or said what you wanted to say and you allowed a little bit of uncomfortableness keep you from doing that At the end of our lives, one of the most important things will be how we did with our family. Did we lift them up? Did we tear them down? Strategy number three, never stop improving your family culture. You know, we talk a lot of business on this podcast, and we talk a lot about business and organizational culture, but families have culture also. Every group of people has a culture that is shared behaviors, values, thoughts, uh, feelings uh, that are between them, right? They're connected by these things and we call it collectively a culture. And what what you focus on will grow and what you spend your time on will improve because the things you focus on get better. 80% of our results come from 20% of the things we do. So if we're always improving it, we're always spending time on it, we're always focusing on it, we're going to have a better family culture than if we don't spend any time on it, we don't focus on it, we don't work on it. So let's say you had a family meeting once a week. Uh, Let's say you just talked about, you know, what does our family believe in? What does our family stand for? What would our family's mission be? And I know I'm sounding like a organizational consultant and coach because that's what I do. But I'm saying that you can apply these same principles that I use with my CEO, president, business owner, uh, leaders. You can use these same principles and apply them to your family. Matthew sixteen twenty six in the Bible says, For even if you were to gain all the wealth and all the power of the world with everything it could offer you at the cost of your own life, what good would that be? And what could be more valuable to you than your own soul? So in other words, what's the point of being successful and losing everything? So you don't want to be reactive with your family. You want to be proactive. Failure is a few daily acts of neglect that leads to large collapse. Success is a few daily acts of focus that can lead to a large success. Strategy number four, your children will become more like you than you can ever imagine. And here's here's a question that I always like to ask, okay? Do you ever see things in your kids that maybe you wish you didn't see? Well, sure. You know why? Because they look like you. You can see yourself in them because they've picked up thoughts and feelings and ideas and opinions and behaviors because they've uh, they've they've been observing you and they've picked them up. I I remember being a very small child. I don't know, I must have been 4 or 5 years old and my dad took me to work one day and there were all these men standing around and it was in the dead of winter. And uh, we were just standing around, and and everybody had these coveralls on because they were trying to keep warm, this group of men who were about to do some work. And I'm standing there in my little coveralls, about four or five years old. And all of a sudden, I just looked at the other guys, and I'm like, it's colder than hell out here, isn't it? And my dad looked at me with this shocked look on his face, and, and it's just like, you shouldn't say that. And in my mind, I remember thinking just as clear as day, why shouldn't I say it? I've heard you say it. So if you want to see change in your kids, you need to be the change you want to see. Because if you lead by example and actively develop them, you will begin to see that in them. Because right now, as I started this particular uh, strategy, I said, do you ever see some things you wish you didn't see? Well, it's, it's easier to affect that if it never happens, right? If only you transmit and transfer good things. John D. Rockefeller, one of the best books I've ever read called Titan, which is the story of John Rockefeller's life, gave examples where over dinner they each had to report in and have a budget and they had to have an accounting of every penny they had and how they spent it. And then John D. Rockefeller would have dinner guests over and his kids would get to ask questions of the guests that he brought in for dinner. So that's just a couple of tactics that one of the richest men ever in the world employed with his kids because he's teaching them. And here's the thing. You only got a small window of opportunity with them. They're never going to be the age they are now again. Once that window of opportunity is closed, you can't get it open again. So the way that you start, it it affects the way you're going to end up, right? And then finally, the fifth strategy I'll share with you on family is develop some family rituals. And when you do those rituals on a consistent basis, you're going to get profound results. It's like anything else. If you exercise three times a week, you exercise four times a week, you exercise five times a week, you have to find that flow of that ritual that works best for you you're going to get corresponding results right and i saw this on facebook the other day and i i've kind of been bashing social media a little bit but i'm just saying do not lose your human connections at the expense of social media make sure you do both but i saw this the other day i thought it was really good And it said, we spend so much time trying to give our kids things we didn't have growing up that we forget to give them what we did have. Well, that's our show today. Better Than Before is brought to you by University Subaru. Join us for the Subaru A Lot to Love event going on now. University Subaru, homegrown and proud of it. You can follow me on Twitter at Tony Richards 4 and also our company at ClearVisionDEV. On behalf of our associate producer, Whitney Coker, and chief producer, William Foster, I'm your host, Tony Richards, reminding you everything gets better when you get better.
0: Thank you for listening to Better Than Before with Tony Richards, a business leaders podcast powered by Clear Vision Development Group. For more resources from Tony, visit clearvisiondevelopment.com. Join us next time for another episode of Better Than Before with Tony Richards.